everyone, welcome to Unpublished. Today we have a guest who is perhaps the greatest intellectual inspiration for this podcast, Dr. Devon Price. Devon is a social psychologist, writer, activist and professor. Their writing on Medium and Instagram is consistently mind-blowing and their book, Laziness Does Not Exist, is my personal non-fiction book of the year. I'm really excited to have this episode for you guys. I loved recording it. It was amazing. A brief apology for the audio, we recorded on Zoom and I wasn't able to individually edit the volume on the separate mics, so there's a slight discrepancy. Uh, Devin is so brilliant though that it's I can guarantee you it's worth sticking it out, so please enjoy the episode and here it is. Hi creatives, welcome to another episode of Unpublished. Today is an extra special episode because we are interviewing Dr. Devin Price. We're so excited to have Devin here. Thank you so much for, for getting to chat to us today, Devin. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. This has been a book, Devin's book, this, that, oh, that they released this year? Was yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was um, January. Yeah. Yeah. Laziness Just Not Exist. Oh which my is, God. When it came out, honestly, it was a revelation for me. They just said so many thoughts that had been in the back of my brain in a really crappy, like uh, primordial ooze for so long. And just crystallized them and gave me so many permissions that I really didn't know I was looking for. And honestly, like it was a book that just, it blew me away when I read it. Yeah. We've been talking about it a lot with our listeners. (laughs) I think it's one of those ideas that it's like, once it is articulated for you, it makes so much intuitive sense. And I think we all live the idea of it every day. It's just, we're not allowed to say it and we're just taught to assume there has to be something wrong with us that is like the reason why we're not doing enough and we just need to push through it so yeah it's it's been nice to see how resonant it is but that's also sad at the same time yeah many people need to hear it yeah Yeah. so true yeah we we did a we did a um a book club we do we did the book for our book club with all our friends as well and um exactly as you say like it was just so many people just finding this idea for the first time and just being like you mean it's fine I mean, it's okay that I don't always feel like I have to be the most productive person in the room. And just seeing that permission in all our friends and seeing all our friends sort of just latch onto that, it was honestly so powerful. It really was. It's really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I think specifically, like, it was also awesome to look at it in the context of us being creators and both of us in our full-time artists and for so long I've, I've wanted to be a writer like you know all of my life and I didn't want to go into like the regular nine to five work I just rejected this idea of like I don't know like normal work life and I felt so guilty and I felt so guilty for that for so long and so it'd be so it was super interesting to talk to you about how you think the laziness lie like uniquely impacts artists and creators because I felt like it, it did kind of impact me in a different way and I had a lot of stories about how I was lazy because I wanted to create stuff and because I wanted to to be an artist yeah there's this phenomenon that I think we see in academia the arts and then also the nonprofit sector as well as some helping professions like education and social work this idea that if you're doing something that's meaningful then you really should be so thankful to even get to do it, that you should be willing to give everything to the cause. You shouldn't care about money. You shouldn't have limits on your hours. All of those things are selfish and mean that you're not a real artist or that you're not a real teacher um, or that you don't actually care about, you know, the racial justice work you're doing or whatever Mm. it is. This um, exploitation of passion, um, which is really twisted Because a lot of times, just as you said, a lot of us who are drawn towards that kind of work, we're pretty unconventional thinkers. We don't want to have a conventional nine to five, um, traditional nuclear family kind of life necessarily. Mm. We're able to break certain or see through certain social rules. But then once we get to working, doing what we love, we're stuck in that same really conventional mindset of competition Mm working as hard as possible for as little as possible and um, competing with other people to see like who can get, who's the best at being exploited. Literally. Um, Yeah. I found myself when I first started writing full time, like I was trying to, I was trying to write from nine to five because I felt so guilty that I got to do what I loved. I was like, well, I've got to look like what everyone else is doing. Like I'm lucky enough to get to like literally do exactly what I want to do. So I've got to, 
I've got it. I wanted to be almost in pain to validate the fact that I was allowed to do what I loved. And so I'd work from nine to five and obviously like, it just doesn't work. Like it was ridiculous and I was hardly getting any writing done. And it was just, but I was just trying to mirror that. Yeah, it was, it was bizarre and it was ridiculous and exhausting. Yeah. I mean, even people who have a nine to five, and of course I go into this in the book, yeah. can't, can't actually work that full nine to five, yes. even if your job is like writing emails versus, you know, novels or whatever. Mm. But then, yeah, if you look at the schedules of like any famous author, it's always like, you know, wake up, take a walk around the garden, yeah, um, write for two hours, drink for 16 hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. I think, you know, we, um, we always try and drill this home to our listeners. Um, but I just feel like it's so nice to hear it from you. I feel like, we know, sometimes Amy and I just go, please just don't exhaust yourself. Please only work for an hour. But I feel like honest, often I find like, we don't have that. We don't have the authority. We don't have the, I'm, I know maybe you'll, you'll reject that phrase, but like, um, it's just so nice to hear it from you because I feel like you've really done the research behind mm. it. And that was something that I loved about the book is that here's someone who's actually drilled down into some, into this gut feeling that I've had that I can't physically work for more than a couple of hours in a day and get good work done for more than a couple of hours in a day. And it's just, um, I'm sorry. I feel like every time I speak, I'm just saying how much I love you. And it's, um, <laughs> it's potentially not helpful for the conversation or moving the conversation forward, but I just, I love to hear you talk about it because as I said, so many of our listeners, I think, um, and me myself find it so hard to ingrain this idea and to take on this idea and they're still and we are still pushing ourselves constantly uh too too hard every day essentially like I'm feeling it at the moment like I I know I have a hard limit of I really shouldn't write more than 500 words in a day and I'm like no this week I'm really gonna I'm I'm gonna do 700 because I've got this like uh writing group that wants to have my novel done by January and I have to do 700 to finish my novel and now I'm just realizing that like now I have no energy to write for the next four days. Mm. I'm not going to get anything done. And it's just such, why is my brain so dumb? <laughs> but, you're, but you're not dumb. It's just this ideology is so heavily embedded into us. So much so that like speaking of the, the research that I kind of try to summarize, industrial organizational psychologists have been looking at the fact in the face that people only can work like three or four hours per day since at least like the 70s really they've been studying it before then, but that's when we really started studying it with like office work. And even though time and time again, they find that you really can't squeeze extra productivity out of people, no matter how much you pressure them, they just always go like, well, maybe, maybe if we try this, we'll be able to change it. Maybe if we get rid of this, what we put, you know, social media blocks on this thing, like we're just always constantly navigating and trying to bargain with having limits. Mm. And it's also just such a deep seated, like Christian morality thing that really affects like how our educational system runs like everything um that is really really hard to unlearn that programming even when it makes no sense <laughs> yeah in our actual lives like because yeah. I've gotten under the exact same pattern as you where it's possible maybe for a few days to push myself past whatever the like two three hour writing limit is but you're gonna pay the piper because mm-hmm. we're human beings we've implemented a um, bare minimum and bare maximum to try and keep us in like a space that means we can keep showing up consistently and keep creating in like a you know with with energy so that and we've never thought of doing that before like capping it so that you never go beyond something it's been it's been useful yeah it's been really useful I mean it's also something that we don't always stick to because as I said before we're idiots but it's like (laughs) if when we remember it when we actually do it it is honestly so helpful Mm. And like, we really credit your book with starting off a lot of our thinking down that path. Like, yeah. um, once again, you gonna just, I feel like I'm just going to stop talking about how much I love it. It's honestly like, I'm so sorry. To have you on is like, this was, all this sort of stuff is just a massive special interest of mine. Like um, sociology, economics, everything. Like I, um, it's like getting to interview um like John Maynard Keynes or something. It's, uh, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> sorry, I'm sorry Devin. about that. I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna stop. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, so something that we, um, Amy and I often talk about is, like, we want to do cool stuff with our life. Like, we want to achieve really cool stuff. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to get stuck, sucked into that hustle narrative. And like, I think sometimes people um, find it hard to go. Well, you know, James and Amy are talking about making sure we slow down, making sure that we 
um, don't burn out. But at the same time, it's like, well, if I want to get my book published or if I want to have like a really cool body of work, sometimes I feel like I have to exhaust myself as well. And I, I don't know where you see the balance there. Yeah. So I guess one thing that about my work that is a little bit different, I think, from people who are writing in a similar space, like Trisha Hershey of the yeah, NAP Ministry yeah. and places like that, um, or like uh, Do Nothing, that book, things like mm. that. Um, a lot of people are writing about the importance of rest and just kind of breaking free of the capitalist cycle and refusing to be exploited. And I'm definitely of a piece with that, but I also think so much of my focus is about clarifying what do you value and what makes you feel alive and what do you want your life to be? Um, that's definitely what the book that I'm wrapping up on now, which is about autism and learning to kind of unmask your neuro neurodivergence if you've had to hide it your whole life. That, that's what that book is all about too. Um, so, so I do think there's this tension here that just cutting back on doing things that exhaust you and saying no to more things and resting more mm. isn't enough. I think that's in some ways, sometimes can be almost like a reform that keeps the system running in a way, you know, like we've all had self-care sold to us as this idea that, you know, it's a thing you put on your calendar. It's another thing to check off your to-do list. Mm. And if you do self-care right, then you'll have more energy at work, right? And I worry sometimes that when we talk about rest, there's a risk of it being exploited in that way. And so for me, a really important part of the conversation is, no, what do you like to do? What are you sometimes even excited to kind of exhaust yourself from? And then you will sleep the whole next day because you play, you know, you played a video game all night and you pulled an all-nighter, you know, not everything has to be in perfect, diligent, respectable boundaries that are very much in line with kind of the capitalist nine to five work day. Yeah. Sometimes you can stay up all night writing something because you were just like struck with like the passion of creativity, you know, that that's Lord knows that's rare when that happens. Right. <laughs> um, it usually doesn't happen. So if you do have the ability in your life to kind of like pursue passion, sometimes that's a beautiful thing. It's just, are you doing it because you want to, and it aligns with your values versus because you have to keep a leg up over everyone else and you're just punishing yourself. Um, yeah, I love that perspective. To me, that feels really relieving. And I agree with the misinterpretation of like the rest narrative. I feel like so often when, when I'm talking about rest or when I'm reading or listening to other people talking about rest, it's so often in service to, and then you can do more. You know, creatives need to rest because, you know, creating is exhausting and you need more energy to do. And it's, yeah, it's hard to divorce the fact that rest is often used to be more productive. Mm, yeah, yeah, interesting. I also, yeah, yeah, that I really love that shift, um, Devin, and I because I have so many things I want to achieve, and I have so much that I love to do. Like the emphasis on rest makes me feel almost guilty for when I do dive really hard into what it is that I love. Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes it is okay to have like excess and abundance. Yeah. And sometimes that is, you know, a vacation, but sometimes that is like, oh, I'm just going to stay up really late, you know, listening to this album or tinkering around mm. with this video or reading this thing, whatever it is. Um, I'm, I'm pretty inspired lately by people who write a lot about kind of rethinking time mm. and kind of getting away from the industrial idea mm. of time. Um, so there's a, there's an Instagram that's literally called abolish time. That talks about oh, this stuff. So I love that. Amazing. <laughs> and then there's this writer, um, Marta Rose, uh, who is neurodivergent and writes about like divergent design and, um, and also writes about just this idea of spiral time and time kind of moving in cycles and waves. And even if you abandon a project, those skills will come back. Mm. That learning will come back these things aren't linear. And so it isn't about parceling time into like yeah. keeping it little scheduled portions. I mean, this might sort of be a little divergence, but um, we often talk to people about how if you say you write a book and you've loved writing that book, but then it doesn't really work out, you abandon it. And it's people often feel like they've wasted like a year of their life doing that. But I really am a strong believer that um, for, for starters, like may, hopefully you had a lot of fun writing that book. And then, yeah, as you say, like, you're going to come back to those skills. Those skills are still going to be relevant to you. Like it wasn't a waste of time to do that. 
And I think that's right. something that's, yeah, that's really hard to, um, in the moment, you can feel, it feels so painful when you abandon a project or it can feel so painful when you quit something, but like it can be actually really useful and empowering. Yeah, our culture is so achievement motivated and it also is so urgent when, I don't know, I did National Novel Writing Month like maybe five yeah. times and they were pretty garbage as their own works a lot of those things but now I can write so much faster and I have a voice because I got so much of that writing that's what we always talk done. about with, with NaNoWriMo like that people are like oh I've got to like I've got to you know make an incredible novel and it's going to be good it's like that is not you know this is not the intention of that yeah. month <laughs> no <laughs> also just I like I like this I like the feeling of just very slowly acquiring skills I've always found some I'm, I'm someone who starts at quite a low I'm not trying to be humble here I'm this is just a fact I'm, I starts at a low level of skill for a lot of things like I always had bad you know playing sport when I was a kid I always had bad hand eye and like it took me ages when I had to pass a rugby ball and stuff and all my peers could pass a rugby ball but then like very slowly over like 10 years I got to the point where I wasn't embarrassing myself anymore trying to pass a rugby ball and like I feel like a similar thing with with um writing it's like I love that very slow chipping away and acquiring skills where it's not really sort of rush to get extremely good at something it's like I'm just gonna I know people feel can feel urgent because maybe they're stuck in a, in a situation which they don't like or they feel like they want to get better straight away because they want to you know maybe be in a different life circumstance but I really if you have the luxury I think to slowly acquire a skill it can be incredible mm. yeah I mean I envy you that you can handle it and be patient with it because anything that I'm not Oh, but not, quickly, I'm, I feel so powerless and I, I hate it. You know, I still struggle with it. Oh, so I, I certainly go through that as well. I think it's like, it's definitely not, I definitely deal with that. It's just, um, I think maybe I'm always glad when I push through that eventually. And I don't, I don't always push. I definitely don't always push through that. No, you're, you're a proud quitter. I am a proud quitter. <laughs> That's good too. Knowing yeah. when to just dip is very important. Yeah, yeah. It's been huge. I love quitting. It's been a big thing that you've taught me actually. I love to quit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, I learned in, um, when I was in seventh grade and I was doing in a swim squad and I just was like, I was just getting overwhelmed and tired with swimming. And I got to the end and I kind of did a slow lap and the, the teacher just was like, well, if you don't want to be here and try hard, why don't you just quit? And I was like, I can, I can do that. <laughs> so I just got out of the pool and quit. And then I was just such a, like a, they couldn't do anything. I just sort of walked away and I quit. And I was like this revelation in my life. And I was like, wow, I can just quit stuff that I hate. <laughs> Obviously, oh, it comes from... Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, you go, you go. We usually don't give kids that autonomy or, like, ability to say what they want, so I'm sure that was a big moment. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think the uh, teacher meant it in that way. <laughs> And obviously, you know, a lot of privilege comes with that. It's just I was in a situation where, like, I was... It was fine. I could, it was just a swim spot. I could just quit it, you know. Obviously, people... I feel like I feel a little bit... You know, I'm showing my privilege there just to be like, just quit stuff. It's fine, you know? Yeah, but it is important, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, Devin, I really wanted to talk to you about, because we have a lot of listeners who are trying to balance their creative life with their normal, you know, nine to five or whatever work they're doing. And obviously that is an extremely exhausting balance because we want to chase our creative dreams. And obviously me and James went through this as well. We want to chase our writing, we want to chase our art, but we have to, you know, pay the bills and, you know, show up to normal work. And the exhaustion that I felt personally when I went through it and also that I witnessed from all our listeners and it's just, it's mammoth and trying to balance that is mammoth. And it, it feels like almost adding to the hustle, trying to chase this other avenue of life. And I, I honestly, like, it's just so difficult and I hardly ever know how to support people through that. And I didn't know how to support myself through that. Do you have any experience with that or thoughts about that? Um, I, I feel bad every time answering this question because I'm a professor. So I have a really yeah. flexible schedule compared yeah. to most people and the way that, and even with that being the case, I am overwhelmed and angry all the time because <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm still having to navigate these things. Yeah. Um, and the way that I do it is by lying, yeah. um, lying at work, putting yeah. fake meetings on the calendar, saying that tasks took twice as long as they actually did overstating my achievements so that I get credit for doing things, you know, that really like plays up how meaningful it was or wasn't, you know, just being very strategic and, you know, defensive basically mm. and kind of like gaming things out and stealing time at work for writing that. time. 
I thought you were going to say that. And I love that you said that. Like, I just think it is a, a most incredible permission slip that so many of us just need. Um, and I think it's the one of the only ways that we can steal back that time for doing what we love. And I just fucking love it. Yeah. 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 Your work is stealing time from you. Yeah. So if you can steal time from them, do it. They're undervaluing, undervaluing what you're doing. So overvalue yourself, overestimate how long things take and how impactful they are, because probably you're actually just correcting it to where yes. it needs to be in the first place, but it's going to feel like getting away with something because you've been so, had it so drilled into you that yeah. you suck and you're not doing enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. It reminds me of the, your Medium article um, the other day about how productivity is going to go down this year, but no one's going to, but you're not going to hear about it in the media and how, I mean, do you think that, um, I don't really, not really sure where I want to go with this question, but it's like, do you think that working from home, if you can, is one of the answers? Like it just makes it, right, it makes it easier to lie, right? It makes it easier to um, do your own thing. Yeah. Work from home has been liberatory for a lot of people because it's really revealed um, that managers aren't necessary a lot of the time and that micromanaging definitely isn't necessary and that people, especially if you're doing any kind of work that requires a sustained focus and producing something um, of any kind, whether it's creative or it's, you know, just filling out a lot of like grant applications, which I guess, I mean, arguably that's also creative, right? Hmm. Um, you need time on your own to be left alone and to kind of follow your own instincts about when you need to go take a walk or, you know, work out, get a snack, whatever. And just all of the time waste involved in commuting into a workplace, dealing with the social dynamics and interacting with people and looking busy and virtuous, all of that stuff just really gets in the way of focusing on what actually matters. If anything, at your job matters, which most of us, um, our jobs are pretty meaningless and, yeah. uh, you know, grueling <laughs> and, and drain a lot of time. Um, so yes, I do think work from home is for a lot of people, the answer. Um, and it's really terrifying to me how much already the rhetoric is being seeded of how much of a pay cut are you willing to take? To yeah. Work from home? When we know that work from home employees produce more and because they're paying, like they're in their own home, you don't have to pay for an office for them and office supplies and they don't have a commute. They're a cheaper employee to have. So why would you be talking about also paying them less? Um, it's, it's just, yeah, it, it always disgusting. strikes me that, you know, libertarians and conservatives think that, oh, you know, everything has to be laissez-faire. Just, you know, the government, don't get into my life, the government. And then it's like, oh, but we need to be in your life as much as possible. And that's going to, for some reason, when you flip the equation, it, it suddenly makes people more productive. And I just think it's like, a, it's like a weird double thing from them. Yeah, it's this individualistic idea that I can work hard on my own. I'm, you know, a cowboy. I'm going to be able to like, or an entrepreneur, a Dale Carnegie figure. I have what it takes to kind of succeed on my own. But that is predicated on thinking you're superior to other people, right? You're, that you're gonna be the cream that rises to the top. And so that means you don't trust other people. You don't believe in any kind of sense of community. You don't trust people that you work with to have the same drive that you do. So I think that's kind of what it's predicated on this idea of individualism and exceptionalism because mm. if you're gonna have any, any prayer of succeeding in like the libertarian fantasy, and I say this as someone who used to be a libertarian, right? Mm. You have to think that you're better than other people. Like it's an inherently mistrustful of other people, self-superior ideology. Yeah. yeah, that's so interesting. I, I, that's really, I, I wasn't expecting to have an answer to that today. And uh, incredible. <laughs> um, obviously I was expecting it because once again, massive fan. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's awesome. Um, I was going to say, um... I actually want to jump in because I have a question. Okay. Yeah. Great. <laughs> um, I talk a lot about, and I teach a lot about procrastination um, because creatives are so, you know, it's like notorious that we love to procrastinate rather than working on our art. And I've always found it hard to talk about procrastination and, you know, help creators move through consistent patterns of like self-betrayal where they say they're going to do the art and then they never show up to do the art and making sure that it's not you know we moving into that hustle narrative um I just feel like these conversations always need to be so much more nuanced than they are that we normally see um you know 
people want to break their procrastination issues with like this obsession with productivity. Whereas I feel like there needs to be a space. And I'm just interested to hear your thoughts about how, you know, it, it is painful when we constantly betray ourselves, when we say we're going to do something and then we don't do it. And especially if we're trying to, you know, create and do stuff that we love, but how do we make sure that we're not using like an obsession with productivity and we're not self-loathing out because, we feel like we're worthless because we're not productive, but still making sure that we're showing up for ourselves and, and showing up for the creativity that we, you know, so want to do. Yeah. So my biggest inspiration on this when it comes to creative work and writing is this book by the psychologist, Paul Sylvia called how to write a lot. Mm-hmm. And he's a creativity researcher. Mm-hmm. And the way he talks about it in that book is really all about scheduling time to do the thing that you care about. You show up for that time and then you're done when you're done. And so similar to what you were talking about earlier about having a cap on maximum productivity yeah, yeah. as well as a minimum, yeah. you show up for the scheduled time because it's a thing you've decided that you care about and that you want to do. Um, and then you also, within that time frame, I think this is involved in a lot of creative procrastination is doing work that is part of the job, but that isn't literally writing or composing or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he really says during your scheduled, you know, let's say, hour or two hours of writing time, if you need to read a journal article to be able to write about this topic, going with an example for myself, right? If I need to research this topic, that's part of the writing process that goes into that schedule. That's not procrastination. Um, It's just not literal productivity in the most literal sense, right? So um, I think that's an important thing to untangle for a lot of creatives. Um, If you care about doing something, you shouldn't just wait for the muse to strike. Um, The data is really consistent that if you have someone just, you know, put their butt in a desk, you know, in a seat at the desk two hours a day and just write, um, they're going to produce more and produce more that they're happy with than if they wait for the muse. Um, Mm -hmm. But also, if you are making it a pretty regular practice and you are giving time to it and honoring it, it's going to happen. It's going to be painful. Sometimes you're not always going to be happy with what you produce. And there are a lot of things that go into that production process that aren't like the showy, beautiful, you know, thousand word days. Yeah. But that's still progress. So some of those things that we call procrastination are actually creative. Yeah. Generative. Yeah. Yeah. Even like, I mean, staring into space is a huge part of my process and it just looks literally like nothing, (laughs) but it isn't. And we need to recognize that. Yeah, I, think, I love that. I mean, how much do you think that um, uh, propensity to, you know, after people have become successful, then they'll tell a story about how they did stuff. You know, they're like, maybe they only did write for an hour or two, but you, you see a successful author, they're like, no, I, of course, I devoted 10 years of my life where I worked 18 hours a day. Because they, they want people, I feel like, want to tell that sort of story about themselves, right? Yeah, yeah. Again, I think it's that kind of bootstraps, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, um, American individualism that, of course, we pushed on all of the rest of the world kind of narrative. And I do think now as someone on the other side of it, I get how people get defensive um, and they want to have that narrative that they earned their success because you have this survivor's guilt if you're one of the few who made it and succeeded. Um, Like a couple of weeks ago, I got an Instagram DM that was like, saying something about how they were like, I like your work, but I, I'm also angry because I've been saying the same stuff for years and nobody gave me a book deal to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, and my initial knee jerk reaction was like, I've been writing online since <laughs> I was 16 years old. Don't you understand? You know, like I wanted to like prove that I had like worked hard enough that I had earned it, even though my whole ideology is that there is no <laughs> So That's many so people good. that have worked and written as hard as I have who have never had anything to show for it. Um, so, I mean, do you think a part yeah. of it is like we're told from such an young age that we have to justify our existence? So it's like, I can't just be this person who writes books. I've got to be like some kind of hard, this like amazing, unique individual who like, as you said, bootstrap themselves. And it's like part of that, part of the mythology that we just, it's just so ingrained in us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, it goes back to that exploitation of of passion thing, where if you are one of the few people in this world who has a job that kind of means something to you, then you're supposed to be so thankful for it. Or you feel guilty about the fact that you, again, got away with something that you have to erect all these justifications around it, even though everybody, you know, should 
have that kind of privilege. Yeah. That's one of those kinds of privileges that it's like, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a privilege, you know? Yeah. yeah. I see that so, so often in successful creatives and I really resonate with that. That's the survivor's guilt thing. And I see it in so many creatives. They're just trying to justify why they get to do what they love. And it seems obvious as to why they're doing it, but it's so dangerous for everyone else who's looking up to them and who wants to do exactly what they do. And then they feel like, oh, they got there by, I mean, you see it all over Instagram. You know, I got here by doing you know this amount of work and I hustled and they're like, oh, if I want to be a creative, then this is what I have to do. Like I just speak to so many burnt out creatives because they believe that if they are going to make it, that they have to absolutely destroy themselves. And it's it's so sad because we're, I mean, we're getting less art because of it. And, you know, these artists are breaking because of it. Mm, so interesting. Yeah, we, we often talk about, um, there's a, a CrossFitter called Matt Fraser, who's like super dominant. So this is a bit left, out of left field. He He's won it, I think, five times, the CrossFit Games five times. And he's always like, it's all hard work, hard work pays off. And it's like, well, obviously you were also a genetic freak. Like, <laughs> obviously, you know, you, you went into a CrossFit gym for one for one year, you came out and you came second at the CrossFit Games next year. And it's like, I just feel like, why do we ignore that other side of the equation there mm-hmm. as well? Yeah. I mean, maybe it's not helpful for people to, 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 maybe it's just not helpful for people to go like, to say to someone, oh, you know, it's going to be like X percentage of luck and it's going to be X percentage your hard work. Like it, maybe it's just not a, something that people want to hear. I think people are also really threatened by anything that challenges the idea of free will. Right. It's like yeah. a really existentially terrifying thing. Mm-hmm. So the fact that your position in life might be more of a product of your genetics and your upbringing and what kind of school you went to and all kinds of other random circumstance and like how symmetrical your face is and like, you know, whether people are scared of you when they see you, you know, just like all kinds of arbitrary things. Um, it's really upsetting because it is so unjust and it mm-hmm. kind of makes life just suddenly seem totally void and meaningless, right? So we do so many things to kind of keep that dread at bay and emphasizing the, at least the illusion of choice and control is really, really important. And of course, it's also just like really embedded in our like moral system and justice system and all those other things. Yeah. I feel as though like what we were speaking about before, like there's a creative that it the successful creative that says that, oh, I got here because I worked so hard or on the other side of it, there's a creative that is so guilty that they made it. They're like, it's all luck. It's all luck. And I also have a lot of issues with those creatives because it does feel so disempowering. And I think back to myself as I was desperately trying to make it as a writer and listening to these extremely successful creatives being like, oh, not a lot of people make it. It's only, you know, the very lucky who make it and how badly that hurt me because of what we just said, you know, that feeling of like no control or no agency over my own life. And I, I feel like I want to strike like a middle there because I feel like it is so disempowering and I see it all the time. Like people just want to tell creatives that they're not going to make it and they're going to have to be lucky. Um, And is there a middle ground we can strike there that, it is not a hard work pays off full mentality, but it was also, you know, just depressing creatives left, right and center and telling them that, you know, they're probably not going to be able to do what they love with their life. Yeah. So I think um, a big part of that is questioning what make it even means. Yes. Right? So, yeah. The definition of success. Right. Because there are elements to, you know, whatever creative market you're in, it's not a meritocracy. It is a very arbitrary market with a lot of like capitalist forces but can you be happy if you make art that you actually really love and you continue to grow um, in your skills as an artist can Mm -hmm. you be happy if you teach other people some of the skills and tools related to your art Um, what do you need to do for you to be and happy is a hard word too because nobody's ever you know crystallized in time forever happy or content but what does your relationship to your art as a practice and as a physical thing that you put into the world, what do you want that to look like? Yeah. I think those are the big questions because um, making it doesn't make you happy. I'm, yeah. I'm as unhappy as I ever have been and ever will be, right? You know? Yeah. Like, I mean, ma- the material benefits are, are hard to debate or discount right Mm. um it gives you more freedom if you can make a living doing something that you don't hate that's amazing yeah but also like chasing after some achievement or some number of reads or views or likes or whatever is never going to actually make you satisfied anyway so thinking about what do I actually want to do with my work yeah it's like it fits in there somewhere 
Yeah, and often it often seems like as an artist, you're either going to make $100 million or you're going to make zero. And I feel like maybe the more we can expand that middle section and the more we can see more people who are just sort of, like Amy and I, like we just, we get by, you know, from our art and it's awesome. Like that's... I mean, we're living the dream. I literally yeah. feel so successful and we're just just getting by, like but we're doing yeah. fr- what like we love. All our friends earn more money than us as accountants and lawyers and stuff, but it's like to us, we're more successful and it's awesome. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, I used to listen to Mark Maron's podcast a lot more and he, when he would interview comedians from like the 1980s comedy boom, there were just so many people who could make a quote unquote middle-class lifestyle as a comedian who would just tour kind of, let's say the American Midwest. So just mm. a handful of States. And so just the whole idea that we like think about success as being, you're going to be famous. You're going to have, you know, millions of fans. You're going to have a certain kind of lifestyle that's really opulent and you're going to forever grow again, forever growth is impossible. Yeah. It's unsustainable in capitalism and it's also unsustainable in our own lives. So if you can, kind of make it by doing things that you actually enjoy and mostly living a life that aligns with your values. Like that's the jackpot. Yeah. Um, there's someone that I started following on TikTok recently who um, has schizophrenia and is on disability and just reads like so many books, the most voracious reader and reviewer I've maybe ever met. And they're like, this is it. This is great. I have no aspiration to make money off of what I'm doing because I'm on disability benefits in an area where there's a cheap cost of living and I'm entitled to that. This is great. That's like, good. yeah, this, and it's just really great to see. This is like, to me, the most exciting conversation ever. And I feel like it's not what is like notoriously exciting. Everyone wants to talk about the massive goals, you know, the million Instagram followers and them all the money. But like, I love talking about this, like when you're just doing what you love and you're, you know, and you're getting by and like how achievable that is for a lot of us. If we, again, this is where I'm like, if we what <laughs> like it's not if we work hard or it's not but they, I just feel like this kind of area of the conversation is really exciting because it is really doable well I wonder if a lot of people do give up because they, they look at like just how much work is it going to take to get to Beyonce you know or like mm. um, whereas they potentially could be looking at well how can I build a more sustainable life or how can I build a more um, a quiet but enjoyable life mm. and I feel like maybe they're yeah, people were putting people off by showing this big celebrity multimillionaire lifestyle as the be all end all. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. It just forever progressing. Like I even think about academics that I kind of came up with and people that I know that have achieved the like incredible job security of like having tenure or something like that. And I just feel like if it were me, if I had tenure, I would really never do anything um, in my formal job role again. You know, I would just cruise but then I see a lot of these people in that role, like, okay, now I got to get this grant. I got to do this impressive thing. I got to compete with the, the kids that are coming up from behind me who are like publishing a ton because they're trying to get tenure. And it's like, calm down. Like you can <laughs> yeah. make life so much easier for yourself, your students, and the people who perceive themselves as competing with you if we just all like just lowered the expectations and stopped trying to compete with each other. There was this amazing professor at um, Sydney Uni where Amy and I went, um, who taught introduction to Greek mythology, which he just was fine. He just turned up and then he taught like fourth year ancient Greek, which no one took. And it was just like, the, it was so smart. I always looked up to him and I was like, you know what you're doing. He just, he literally, he didn't have to prepare a single lecture. He just rocked up and talked about like, you know, Zeus for two hours <laughs> with a few slides. And then no one's turning up. He's just sitting in his fourth year ancient Greek class, maybe with one other person who's probably like a personal friend by this stage because it's fourth year ancient Greek. And I just was like, that's that that guy gets it. Mm. That guy gets it. But you're right. I feel great like you know, scam. Yeah, great scam. <laughs> it was a great scam. Yeah. Yeah. It was awesome. I love it. I think that's something that we should aspire to. Or I need to aspire to that. I think that pressure of always, like I'm really obsessed with momentum, especially as a creative for so long who had no momentum. You know, none of my writing was reaching anyone. I was always pushing to be seen. And then when I did, you know, create an audience and now that I am seen, I still have that fear of no momentum. And I think it's that like, oh, I, I've got to keep going, keep growing, keep, and it's exhausting. And it's also just, not even what I really desire, but it's like almost like a fear that pushes me. I don't want to go back to feeling like I am still, or I don't want to go back to the past where, where my art just wasn't connecting at all, but it's not in service to me in any way. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it can be so self-defeating because I feel like, especially if you're just trying to get your work out into the world, which unfortunately for most of us, that means some element of social media. Yeah. People can like, unfortunately kind of smell that like attempt at trying to do what will make people happy mm-hmm. and it puts them off. People don't like inauthenticity, right? And it feels so grimy and gross yeah. to, to do that anyway, or just when somebody's operating from a position of fear or, or just feeling like things are insecure versus when someone's just doing something that they clearly think is fun and that they're actually really excited about for its own sake. I mean, that's why I love your Instagram because I mean, you just like, well, look, there's Jeremy fragrance. And then there's, (laughs) you know, it's just, it's incredible. It's just the best time. And it's so refreshing to see you show up on my feed and be like, Oh, this isn't someone who's just trying to teach me like the 10 hacks for social media marketing or something. And it's just like, and as a result, I feel like people, and often I talk about this, it's like, you want to, you want to have people come to your page who actually, want to engage with you and not people who want to just be like flitting in and out and not really caring. It's like, they want to, you, you, you're better off turning off people who weren't ever going to like you anyway. Right. Yeah. I'm really inspired in this by um, someone named Danica XIX. Um, they used to uh, be on YouTube as comic book girl 19. And now they do more like Twitch streaming, but they also do like photo shoots and like, they do like book clubs on Twitch. Cool. Um, And they talk a lot about how one of their big goals on social media is culling the herd because they're going to get a lot of followers because they're like a very like conventionally attractive, cool person talking about comic books and books and like all of these ideas and stuff. And a lot of those people are just not going to be able to hang with who they actually are as a person as this kind of like weird gender fucky weirdo. Um, And so they'll just deliberately post things that are designed to kind of not offend people but like alienate the people who are supposed to be alienated and I know that when my book first came out and I had like a publicist with the publisher I had all of these like things happen where it was like oh I have to speak to this radio show and do this thing and like you want me to schedule post this often and it was just very like no I'm gonna just talk about Pokemon or whatever and you know that's I'm just gonna like try and feel like a person because this yeah. stuff is so soul sucking and it'll drive away the people that need to be driven away. Again, we don't all need to have exactly hundred thousand followers. Exactly. Like, good God, you know? Yeah. Like Amy and I were talking about this the other day and Amy did a post about this. It's like, you know, I think one of her posts went viral and, and she suddenly had 20,000 more followers, but it's like, but Whoa. they, but they were like, they're useless to me. <laughs> you know, like no one's, they're not really engaging. They're not really buying anything. They kind of just flitted in and they kind of just hit follow. And it's just, it's not as big a thing as you, yeah. you think it's going to be you need your people you need to find like the people who resonate with like what it is you actually want to do and I mean it just, it's just so exhausting and I think so many people are on social media pandering to people who they like pandering to everyone and what an exhausting mm-hmm. and useless thing to do and I'm, I've really been learning that because I mean being on social media can really take you for a ride in terms of the stories you start telling yourself about what you need to do and what you shouldn't be doing do you like being on social media I have just a a brain that is just like constantly like fluttering around and I feel a need to be heard and to share things that I'm obsessed with, with people. Mm. So for the like autistic info dumping, um, attention seeking side of me, it's so pleasurable. Um, but the like marketing side of it, I really tried to like avoid because it's just disgusting to me. Um, so I like it, but I also hate the shallowness mm, of course you know yeah. as someone who posts writing online on medium you know I'll put an essay that's you know 3,000 words because I don't have self-control and I can't help but <laughs> tell the really long version of yeah. what I want to say which is not what you know it's not good SEO right it's not good like yeah. uh, social media <laughs> to write something that long and then I'll get you know two or three comments that are really long and thoughtful and they're not from anybody that any like publicist would think would be yeah, my target demographic. Yeah. Like I get these like incredibly long, thoughtful responses from just like an 80 year old woman, <laughs> like living on a mountain somewhere. And it's like, oh my God, this is what I'm here for. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> I'm not trying to car- yeah. I'm not trying to car- like corner, like every overworked millennial ever, <laughs> you know, with the most generic, like yoga lady kind of packaging about self-care, like forget it. I want, I want the 80 year old woman yeah. who, is talking to me about like, you know, 
transformers in my comment section for some reason. <laughs> yeah. I love like that. that. And also I feel like, you know, if you if you were to just go on the route of, oh, I'm just gonna be another, you know, self-care Fitzbo person or something, like <laughs> I mean, they they get hundreds of thousands of followers, right? But then for to what end? I, I'm always convinced I'm like, can they like are people buying their fitness supplement or whatever? Or like are people I just don't it always seems like a Sisyphean kind of thing, like just rolling that boulder up the hill, right? Yeah, I was just learning about what some of the stats are like for those like big accounts. Yeah. And on, on one hand, it's like very inane for me to care about this as someone who is like anti-achievement, anti these like metrics and stuff like this. But it was pretty fascinating. Um, the person who was posting about this was, her, she's a comedian and her name is Enna Da. And her um, account is called Park Slope Arsonist. And uh, she was talking about how for the big influencer accounts, it's like, and I researched this after she was talking about it. It's an industry standard to expect to only get engagement of like about 1% of your followers per post, which is incredibly low. And that's just nowhere. Like I get, you know, 10 to 20% on each Mm. post Mm. usually. And I think that's just because I have the people that like actually more or less care about what I'm talking about. Yeah. 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 And usually I'm introducing some new idea or some new mm-hmm. obsession. I'm not posting the same thing over and over again. And it's just purely like following my, my sheer, you know, autistic hyper-focus on, you know, where it's taking me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love um, it. When, when I see that you've posted a medium and it's like 30 minutes to read, I'm like, perfect. <laughs> James is like, puts his like Bump noise canceling headphones on. He's like, see ya, Amy. <laughs> oh, God bless. That's, that's my ideal reader. Yeah. Like, yeah. Get a, a glass of wine and just like yeah yeah I get an, I get annoyed at like a short little Instagram caption I'm like and <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's always so much more to say yeah big time right you want to talk you yeah. want to do this question just to wrap it up which one this one here yeah do you want to talk a bit more about your new book don't have yeah. to but it's just I'm excited for it Sure. Yeah. So my next book is Unmasking Autism, Discovering the New Face of Neurodiversity. Um, And it's out in April um, with Penguin Random House. Um, And it is just this whole exploration of um, the idea that there are a lot of people who are neurodivergent, specifically autistic, who never find out until they are adults and have all of their struggles and things that make them kind of different from the normative standard, um, overlooked. And this used to be called female autism because there is this idea in the literature that like when girls have autism, it's quote unquote less severe and um, they can be more social and kind of present as more neurotypical. But what I'm really arguing in this book is that it's not actually a phenomenon of gender, it's a phenomenon of exclusion. So if you don't meet the standard portrait of like the white, straight, cisgender guy who's obsessed with trains, you're very likely to have your divergence ignored and you're gonna have to mask it. Mm. Um, So the book's all about, you know, who are masked autistics, you know, and that's like queer people, people of color, trans people, all these kind of marginalized groups, people in poverty. And what does it mean um, to unmask if you've had to basically camouflage and compensate for your autism your whole life because you didn't even know what it was and how can you kind of get back more in touch with who you actually are and not being ashamed of who that person is which is a real head trip um and I'm certainly not like the poster child of having like recovered from any of that but Mm. (laughs) certainly on that on that path too so yeah so exciting yeah I'm I'm so excited for that I'm recently been on the journey in the last few years of, of um I had no idea that I was autistic until you know obviously thank thank god for internet culture because like you know, that's how, I mean, I, and I know you've had a similar experience, right? Um, and just seeing little things being like, hang on a minute, that's really reminds me of what my experience was like growing up, or that's exactly what happens to me every day. And then, um, you know, finally going to my GP and my GP was like, oh no, well, you look me in the eyes, so you can't be autistic. And then I was like, okay. And that being said, she was like, oh, but I'll recommend you to us to a psych. Um, I'll, I'll send you to a psych that specializes in autism. And then the, the psych was like, yeah. and um it just was such a bizarre experience because you're right and my whole family and I know you've written about this was they're all I mean on my dad's side clearly autistic right down to the obsession with trains and timetables in like Mm. three three out of four like three of my uncles it's like no one thought about this and and that's (laughs) and that is male 
you know, very standard presenting autistic people still aren't getting diagnosed as well. Right. And it's like, imagine how much more it is for every other kind of person. It's like, it, you know, it, it's, it's obviously just so much more widespread than we think it is. And, and it's helped me so much to come to terms with it and to understand it. I mean, mm. I think it's so important. Yeah. Yeah. I have learned so much about myself from just talking to other neurodivergent people on Tumblr and then, you know, meeting up with them online and things like that. It just is not something we had access to in terms of information, even in like the nineties when I was growing up, let alone some of your older relatives that you're talking about who, even if they would have maybe met the kind of standard profile as we understand it now, just the generational difference and how we thought of it back then, if you could quote unquote function in any way, it was like, don't even worry about it. We're just not even. And they were good. And like, um, that side of my family is Jewish and they were really good at school. So everyone was like, oh, well, if you get at school, who cares about like, whether you're surviving essentially. Mm. Um, and yeah. Yeah. I mean, just being, just being good at school, I think is such a, like a, if you can get good grades, it's like, well, who cares what else you're doing? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you can conform and, you know, school is a very good model for then work. And so if you can kind of show up in the right place and kind of like sit in the right spot and do the right thing, you're a good little worker bee. There's nothing to kind of examine there, even though playing by those rules, especially if you are neurodivergent is so like, it takes a toll over time. It can be so corrosive to just have to be so compliant. I used to wonder, I used to be known as the person who always had sick days, but like I wasn't sick. I was just, I couldn't face going to school. It wasn't even that I wasn't, that I was bad at school or that like I was, didn't have friends. It was just, I just couldn't, I couldn't go five days a week. You know, I just couldn't do yeah. it. It was always like, oh, there's James. Like, of course, James doesn't come to school. He doesn't do Mondays. And it was always like this big joke. And I was like, I literally don't do, I can't do Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That My sister was the exact same way. Um, she would always like fake a stomach ache on the day that our grandmother was like watching her. So she skipped school like once a week. And I have someone in the book who I profiled who, as soon as they got to middle school, just all the transitions, having to go from different classrooms throughout the day and just all the new people, it was just so overstimulating that she just had to pretend to be sick a couple of days a week just to recharge her batteries. So yeah, we have to do so many things to compensate since we couldn't get the accommodations that we actually were entitled to. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm so excited for the book. Is yeah. it, uh, can we pre-order it already? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Amazing. yeah. It's, um, I don't know if like websites look different internationally, but yeah, yeah. it should be up on all the places, all the Amazing. standard places. Amazing. Yeah. Exciting. Well, thank you so much, Devin. This has been the best. It's just so good to talk to someone who is just like, we've spoken about these topics so often and it's just so nice to actually get to talk to you and to bounce ideas off of you. Yeah. And you know, in many ways we've stolen from you yeah. so many times <laughs> and it's just good to have like the, the primary source. <laughs> no, but yeah, please disseminate the ideas, expand <laughs> yeah. on them, remix them, you know, all, all of that. Yeah. Thank you yeah. so much. No, thank you. We'll put, um, we'll put your books in the, in the notes so that people can go grab a copy. Although we have spruiked your book a lot. If you haven't bought it yet, what do yeah, you do? Yeah. I feel like, we're, I feel like a lot of our listeners will be like, yeah, of course we, we already own it. That's the, that's the <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much, Devin. Thank you, Devin. Yeah. Thank you.